and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, it's great to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. I've come back uh, refreshed and reinvigorated for another year of Odd Lots podcast. I am extremely excited about another year of uh, doing the show with you. I was very sad to not have you for the last two episodes. So, yeah, I'm very excited that we're back at it in the new year. Oh, thank you. You know, the flip side of not doing the Odd Lots podcast with you is that I get to listen to them on my own time, which is something I don't do when I record them with you, obviously. Good point. So that'll be my excuse when I take <laughs> off. Uh, when I take off a few weeks at some point, I'll just say, oh, it's because I really just wanted to give them a fresh listen and not hear them biased by my own uh, participation. I'm sure that will be the case. So, you know, obviously we talk a lot about bubbles on the show Last year, we had a whole series about various bubbles throughout history, and then we had a bunch of episodes, I think, about bubbles that weren't even part of the series, and I'm sure we'll have many more. It's just one of our recurring themes for obvious reasons. Yeah, bubbles remain, I think, personally, probably the most interesting phenomenon that we observe in markets because there's all this collective behavior and sort of psychology involved in every single one. Right. I think it's like when psychology takes hold to such a dominant degree and the underlying reality of what's going on seems to exert just such a minimal force in the underlying market. I think that's a good way of describing it. The other interesting thing about it is, of course, you never know when a bubble is going to pop, right? Because a bubble that doesn't pop is also known as a really good bull market, right? It's one of these things where we, we only can definitively say something is a bubble in the aftermath. Yes, all bubbles are retrospective in nature. Well put. So, you know, the, the thing is, we talk a lot about these from a sort of like, you know, market perspective. Like, what are the signs that something is in a bubble? And what are price movements that suggest something is in a bubble? And, you know, that is certainly one way to examine it. But what we haven't done as much is talk about like what it's like to actually live your life through a bubble, the perspective of a person who is just sort of right in the middle of it, someone right on the inside as opposed to a speculator. Right. I really like this idea because it gets, again, to that behavioral aspect of bubbles. How do people actually behave and live when they are going through this kind of episode? So today, I'm very excited, we're going to be uh, talking with our colleague Dash Bennett. He works with us here at Bloomberg. He's an editor. He does social media for us. He does a bunch of other stuff. We've both worked with him for many years. And what's interesting and why I'm excited about uh, talking to Dash is that he lived through the dot-com bubble. Like So all this stuff that we talk about, people are trading it in the stocks. He was actually working for one of these companies whose stock went completely insane and then totally imploded. Right. And the way this podcast is coming about is uh, we were having a sort of casual conversation on our internal messaging system, and Dash started saying some really interesting and slightly outrageous things about what his whole experience was like, and we thought, we need to dig into the details of this, right? Exactly. So without further ado, Dash Bennett, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. So let's get started with your history. Tell us where you were in 1999. What? So we, we already set it up. You were working for one of the companies that was sort of most emblematic of the dot-com era. 
what was the company? How did you join them? And what were you doing for them? Yeah, it's kind of a became a legendary story of the uh, the dot com bubble bursting. So at the end of 1999, beginning of 2000, I was actually living in New York, and I had not been out of college long. I was like trying to become a writer, and it wasn't going very well. And then a friend of mine from high school, who was he went to the same high school as me, but he was a few years older, emailed me out of the blue and said, "Hey, we're looking for writers. I work for this company, Excited Home, which I had never heard of. I sort of knew what Excite was because that was a big." web portal, like a big rival to Yahoo. Right. It was like a second tier Yahoo. Yeah. So about a year earlier, at the beginning of 99, it merged with At Home, which was a broadband ISP, basically, and where they sold internet connections through cable companies and they had separate deals with the cable companies. Now it's all run by the cable companies. Back then, At Home was its own thing. So they merged and that was a huge thing at the beginning of 99 and their stock went through the roof. So they had all this money. And so they started creating content teams to create web content for their portal that would be exclusive to at home. And so my friend had been working there for a few months and he was like, I'm writing about sports. I know you know about sports. We need people. Why don't you come out here? So since I was looking for work, so they flew me out there and put me up for two weeks as a test, as like an interview, which was crazy. <laughs> so that's already crazy. The fact right. that like, they uh, flew you out there and put you up for two weeks for an interview. Yeah, me, a person who had at that time had no bylines, had no experience as a paid professional writer. So they, yeah, they flew me out there. They gave me like a two week tryout, basically hired me as a contractor. It went really well. So then they hired me full time. So again, this just give you more sense of like how much money is flying around. First of all, they were paying me a salary that I never thought I would make at that stage in my life. But then they flew me out to their office was in Redwood City, California, which is just south of San Francisco. They put me up for 30 days in temporary housing. They got me a rental car for 30 days. They hired a broker to help me find an apartment. They paid for all of that. So that was just sort of the first sign that this company has a lot of money and they're spending it very quickly. And the team I was on was growing. They were adding people all the time. There was about, at its peak, it was about 30 people of writers, web designers, artists, all working to just create this sort of like little mini newsroom inside right. this technology company. So two things on that. When you heard about this company and you heard about the position, were you thinking at all that this was a sort of risky venture? And um, was there any sense that you were working for a technology or a dot-com company, or did you just think this is a sort of run-of-the-mill content provider? No, it very much had the, like, all the stereotypical traits of, like, a dot-com phenomenon thing where we had a slide in our office, one of those, like, that <laughs> uh, went from the second floor down to the first floor. You know, when I showed up at the office, it was very clear that it had, it had all those, like, things you always hear about. There was foosball table and ping-pong tables, and there was free food everywhere, uh, when I first started, there was, you know, they brought in lunch once a week. Every Wednesday, we got a free lunch. Everyone on our team got a free lunch. And there were vending machines all over the offices, but they were all free. So all the sodas and snacks. And we had bagels every morning. And so it, it didn't feel like a real company, but it also didn't feel like this was a thing. We were just trying to get as much as we could before it all fell apart. At the time when I started, right. it was very much like, this is the future of the Internet. This is the future of the it world. That's my memory of it, too. I mean, I wasn't working for any dot com at the time. I wasn't I didn't even have a job. But I remember like at the time it didn't feel like, oh, this is crazy. It's about to end. It felt more like this is the future. Like yeah, everyone absolutely. believed like this is the new economy. We are in a new era of prosperity. Businesses of the future are going to have this sort of freewheeling vibe. 
So in retrospect, you look at the slide and you say, oh, well, that is obvious excess. But in that moment, it's like, no, the office of the future will be this fun place to play around. Yeah, it was uh, it was there were no cubicles. It was very much open office. And a lot of those things you still see today right. as like the hallmark of a young, exciting company. It's all the same things they were doing 20 years ago. We have an open office here at Bloomberg and we have a great snack bar. Yeah. Sadly, we do not have a slide <laughs> no. from the uh, <laughs> that, that would to be the nice. floor. <laughs> Right. That's our one area of restraint. But this gets to one of the big lessons that we learned from our bubble series, which is that every bubble comes with a convincing story that you have to believe in. So, Dash, I know you mentioned it already, but could you maybe just expound a little bit on what the story was for Excite? Like what exactly the promise was way back in 1999, early 2000s? I've been thinking about a lot, knowing I was going to come on here, trying to remember <laughs> back to the days of what was going on there. And what I keep coming back to is that so many of these companies and ours especially, they were trying to create a model for like how you would provide Internet to people. And that model still exists today. And it's actually the dominant model. But they were I don't know if it was because they were too early or, you know, they couldn't expand too much or, you know, or people were expecting too much too soon because of all the hype. But basically at home was a broadband provider they hooked people up you know you paid forty dollars a month they gave you a modem they hooked you up to the internet and they decided that well much like AOL where you were in this when you dialed up to AOL you were in this like their environment in right. their browser and all that they were trying to do the same thing but for broadband which was still broadband was still relatively new then not a lot of people had most people were still dial up cable internet was very expensive and most places you simply couldn't get it that is a good point. It's like, in a way, they were just way too early because if you think about even the media, what we're seeing in media today, where you have an entity like Comcast, this huge infrastructure provider, but also which makes incredible content investments at the same time, it does sound like the Excited yeah, Home model. That, that's like what they were. That's what, that was the idea was they, they bought Excite, which was a port. Because like, at the time, that's how people got on the internet was portals. Right. It was AOL, Yahoo. Those were our big competitors. So they were like, we'll buy, a, we'll buy our own portal. We'll stick them together. Now we have everyone in this contained universe. So they come to our site. They do all their shopping. They do all their web browsing. We can serve them ads. We can also sell them things. And then we're also on top of that. We're making the 40 to $50 a month that they pay to get on Real the quickly, before I forget to ask, what month did you start? Because, you know, thinking about the timeline of all this, we know the bubble peaked in uh, March 2000. But when did you start at Excited? That's, I think I started in March 2000. It was either February or March of 2000. It was, And it was right after, yeah. They, 2000 uh, or 99? 2000. Oh, got it. Yeah. Oh, so you started right then. Yeah, I was like I right at the peak of the, of the bubble. <laughs> <laughs> but about a year earlier was when the merger happened. Right, and the stock I see. was The stock was up somewhere around 100. And... There were already starting to be problems under the surface because when I started a year later, it was down to like 30. Ah, interesting. 30 or 40. So you mentioned the merger just then. I think this was part of the thing that went wrong for the company, right? They just spent a ton of money on mergers and there was this frenzy at the time. Everyone wanted to grab market share. Walk us through what that was like living it from a corporate perspective. Yeah, so... The merger obviously brought in a ton of new cash to the company, is my understanding of it. And they kind of did go on this huge spending spree, not just hiring more employees of their own, but also sometime in 99, shortly after the merger, it, it became a kind of legendary thing. They bought a company called Blue Mountain Arts. It was oh, a, it was wasn't a, that like some like billion dollar greeting card yeah, company? Yeah, it, it was an online greeting card company <laughs> to basically just email little animations to your friends of like, happy birthday. I want to say... 
my dad uses Blue Mountain greeting card system to this day, and he uses it as a replacement for email. So all his email messages to me basically come in the form of electronic cards. I hate this company, Dash. Yeah, they still exist, but Excite paid, I looked it up, it was like $850 million deal and like $350 million in cash to this. I have to say, like, I remember that deal, and I know we're like, oh, at the time it all seemed normal, but I do remember <laughs> distinctly thinking, like, even amidst all this euphoria, thinking that it's like, this seems a little weird. Yeah, like, that, that was kind of, yeah, that was like, like the first sort of red flag. That Yeah, even at the time, people were like, really, you're going to pay that much money for a greedy card online, company? Like the, and they're like corny, like, animated. Yeah, movies. yeah, yeah. They were the, because, you know, again, not a lot of people had broadband internet, so you couldn't send, like, huge gifts or... Uh, videos <laughs> through the email, it, so it was it was a very weird thing. And then they, but they set up their they so they brought them in, they set them up in our offices. And then two years later, when was the company fell apart, they sold the whole thing for thirty five million dollars, which is like now nothing. So you got there, it was like right around the overall market peak, but mm-hmm. a little, but after they had peaked, so you must have been working with a lot of people who at one point were worth millions of dollars on paper. And day after day, watching their paper wealth sort of literally vanish. So I'm curious, like, what's that like? There were a couple people there who were actually had been employees before the IPO. And they got stock options, which was, again, a standard thing even back then. So, yeah, on paper, they were millionaires. And they had sold some of their stock when the stock was sky high and made a lot of money, but were still continuing to work there. Nobody, nobody at my level, like, was able to, like, cash out and retire. Although they might have been able to if they timed it perfectly, but they obviously no one did. And you could see the frustration for them, especially as all their wealth is tied up in this company. And again, they were sold this idea that this is a company that's going to last for a long time. This right. is the future of the internet. And as the company started to slowly fall apart and people began to sense that this was not going well and it didn't look like it was going to get better. Obviously, yeah, they were very frustrated and it was hard to come to work every day knowing that. Like I said, I was one of the last ones in. So I sort of knew all along that my stock options were not going to become anything or it was right. a real long shot that my stock options were going to become something. But like you said, yeah, you're right. These people on paper, their wealth was they had a lot of wealth into this company and then the company was falling apart around them. So were there any warning signs at the time? Because it's easy for us, of course, to look back on it 17 years uh, in the future. And we can sit here and say, oh, well, obviously, they paid way too much money for an electronic greeting card company. And obviously, they were paying people too much. And there was all this excess. But at the time, was there any indication that the whole thing was going to come collapsing? I hate to say that like uh, there were signs that it was like, oh, obvious this is this is about to burst. But when it did start to fall apart, it was a very slow motion at first and then all at once. And there were little signs that things were not going well. And the thing for someone at my level, the most obvious one is those perks. Like I was talking about when I was first hired with all the bagels and the free soda and all that. So after a few months, suddenly they take away the lunches. There's no free lunches anymore. And then a couple more weeks go by and now there's no more bagels. The bagels are only on Friday instead of every day of the week. And oh then, man, that's rough. <laughs> yeah. And then all the, uh, the, but the big one for me when I was like, okay, something is definitely going on here is like shortly before the first round of layoffs, they started charging 25 cents for the sodas in the vending machines, which used to be free. Oh man. 
And so like we, really literally nickel and diming. It yeah, that was like, the thing. Yeah, yeah it was like, like you used to give us these for nothing and now you want 25 cents. <laughs> the fact that it was 25 cents, it almost made it worse than if they just charged full price. Because right. it's like, you know, this is only going to get this is the beginning of the end and it's going to start to go down. And in terms of like morale, I mean, obviously, I imagine the worst thing that happened is people losing their millions. But all these little things, mm-hmm. what? It, how does this sort of just general vibe of working, does it feel less fun every day? Like, So there were little things like that. And then after I'd been there about a year, so somewhere around the beginning of 2001, there was our, our first round of layoffs, which was not a huge number in retrospect, but it was it was like a big wake up call to everyone in the company that like things are not going well, something is wrong and we're not sure if we're going to be able to get out of this now. So the, the content people were the ones who were getting axed the most because in addition to the stock dropping, we began to see the online advertising market right. started to crater. And that was a huge chunk of our revenue at that time. So as that, got worse and then they laid people off and then the revenue got worse and then they laid more people off. So that whole year of 2001 was like a steady drip, drip, drip of there was this first round of layoffs. And then like, we all knew that there was going to be another round. We just didn't know when we didn't know where it was going to be. And another thing around the same time for most of 99 and 2000, they were building a new building for us as a new headquarters right on the one hundred one and. Also, one of those yeah. classic signs in retro, the new headquarter curse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a whole, there's a whole name and, for that. And it was open maybe, you know, so once that opened, it was this big gleaming building. It was very nice. It was a cafeteria. And so at that time we had, we were taking up space in four buildings. It wasn't even still big enough to handle all the employees. But then suddenly two of the buildings were combined into one building. And then a few months later, we're all combined. Into, and the company just kept shrinking both in size and, you know, stature and, Every little, like I said, every little drip, drip, drip was not only signs that the things were going bad for the company, but it was just brutal to morale and people, you know, that whole year of 2001, the whole summer, everyone just could sort of see that, like, you know, we need some kind of rescue here because this is not going well. And am I going to be the next person to get laid off? What am I going to do if I get laid off? Because the same thing was happening at every other company in the Bay Area all the same time. So if you got laid off, there was nowhere else for you to go to find another job. Right. So I'm curious, this is sort of a weird question, but as the money dried up and morale took a hit, did you observe the people around you clinging more firmly to the idea of the company's mission? Like, did people start saying, well, oh, it's not as fun as it used to be, but we're doing something really important here. We're creating the future of the internet. And the reason I ask is because Of course, when we talk about bubbles nowadays, a lot of people start thinking about Bitcoin. And with Bitcoin, the story is so strong there. And there's this whole sort of belief system built up around it that people start to seize upon whenever the price goes down. There was probably some of that at the top of the executives who were really invested in making this company work. And, you know, at my level, kind of the bottom rung of the company, I I think people were just trying to trying to stay above water and survive. And we talked about this also that part of the thing with Bitcoin is that people can see a future, even if the bubble collapses and the price collapses, people can still see a future where Bitcoin exists or some other cryptocurrency exists. And I think a big thing with these companies in the in that first dot com boom was the mission is going to go on even if the company doesn't. Mm-hmm. So 
it was more about like winners and losers is that somebody right. was going to do what we were doing. Uh, somebody was going to take somebody that which turned out to be right. That yeah. was the correct. Cause a lot, as you say, the model survived. Yeah. It wasn't Yahoo that there was anything survived. wrong with the idea of broadband internet or online content. It was just that this company was not making it work. And so if we failed, one of our competitors would pick up the slack and keep going. Right. But as time went on, it was like, it became clear that we were going to be the loser in this fight and somebody else was going to win that there was a lot of that going on. I think all over the, that dot com boom, that whatever, whatever your niche was, whatever business you were in, you had five competitors and you couldn't all survive. Somebody was going to win, but it, there was no scenario which everything would just fall apart and there would be no Internet. But it was a question of who's going to be the winner and who's going to be the loser. On that grim note, how did it finally end? Were you laid off? Like what was the how did it finish for you? So there was a my team, which was about 30 people by the summer of 2001, it was down to three and. Yeah, it was seem so you were a survivor. Yeah. So the fact, I mean, it's already pretty impressive. We're talking to someone who was like in the top 10 percent that wasn't some that I hung on for as long yeah, as I so did. Well done on that. Day. Yeah, it was the opposite of the last in first out. I was the last one in, which also meant I was the made the least amount of money. So that's wow. why I was able to, to keep hanging on. But so at the last few months, it was like really grim. People were just disappearing every day, either quitting or getting laid off. And you wouldn't even know. One day I came in before I was laid off and my computer had been stolen from my desk. <laughs> and it turned out that the guy who sat across the aisle from me had been laid off. And when he got laid off, he just took my computer and walked out the front door <laughs> and no one stopped him. And I called security and they did not care. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was so weird. It was getting slower and slower. We moved to a new desk. And then actually September 11th, 2001 happened. And then two weeks later, the company filed for bankruptcy. And that was when I was laid off. And, they gave me two weeks. They gave me the option of just leaving, walking out the door with my severance, or I could stay two weeks and get a little bit more sunset my product, I guess, which didn't even really serve any purpose. But a lot of people were offered a deal, I remember, where initially when the bankruptcy was filed, it was pitched as, well, this is the, the classic. We're going to reorganize. And we're going to come out on the other side, and right. we're going to have a stable company again, and we'll get some new funding from you know, AT&T was a big investor in us, and we were trying to negotiate something where they could save us. And so a lot of people were sold on the idea that like you can walk out right now with like a couple weeks severance package or if you stay and we get through this, then you're going to be rewarded on the other side. So a lot of people took that deal and then a few months went by. And then at the end of December, that was it. They liquidated and it was like, we're done as a company. And those people ended up with nothing. Oh. And again, and, and I heard stories of the last days of when it was clear that like not only are we not going to make it, like it's shutting down, we're selling all our assets, that people were just taking server racks out of the yeah, and just like dumping them in their trunk and driving pure away. Savagery. Yeah. It was just, it was just picking the place apart. People taking furniture and computers again and everything. And, and so, you know, in September there was this pitch that like, Oh, the company will survive and keep going. And then two months later it was just, wow. it was over. And then even though I was laid off, I still lived there for a couple more months. And the thing that struck me as this is over is so when I first moved to the Bay area, I lived in Redwood City, which is where the office for Excited Home was, and it's about 25 miles from San Francisco, which is not that far. But if you tried to drive there during rush hour in 1999 or 2000, it would take at least an hour, sometimes two or three hours with the traffic because they're just everywhere, just people everywhere. Everything's bustling. And then by the time I ended up leaving California, it would take. 15 minutes because wow. there was never anyone like no matter what time of day, there was never anyone on the highway and you would drive down the highway and you'd see all these buildings for all these dot-com companies and they were empty and all the restaurants were empty because so many people who came there to make their fortune and then their company collapsed. And as soon as their company collapsed, they didn't stay. They went back to wherever they came from. 
That is a great, perfect anecdotal <laughs> way to sum up the end of the uh, bubble. Yeah. Dash Bennett, that was fascinating conversation. I love this perspective on the bubble. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Tracy, I love that perspective on the bubble. I mean, that's kind of, I guess that's kind of obvious. I know from many conversations with you, Joe, that you love talking about the dot-com bubble. I mean, you know, like I didn't live it like Dash did to an extent, but I remember it pretty vividly. And, you know, we've talked about it before. But that whole angle, that detail about people at the end essentially looting the office, stealing servers from the server room. I love that so much. Yeah, and the idea that maybe there were some warning signs when the free lunches ended, that's a sort of classic economics tenet, isn't it? No free lunches. Literally, no free lunches. <laughs> but no, it is easy and to, you know, and I think the whole thing with the slides, it's like it's easy to look at the excesses of the past and to assume that it must have been obvious at the time that everyone knew that they were ridiculous. But I think that, you know, and it goes to this theme that we keep hitting on, the power of the story. Right. Is in a bubble, it's so compelling that you're just not sure. It's like, yeah, maybe the slides are ridiculous, but maybe this is what the office of the future is going to be like. And it's really hard to know in that moment which way it's going to go. Right. And sometimes the story is actually correct, because as Dash pointed out, this business model did become the dominant model. It was just that this particular company, Excite at Home, wasn't the one uh, dominating it, right? So this gets back to the idea that he was talking about the winners and losers during a bubble. Like, not everything is going to necessarily disappear, but a huge chunk of it might. Even if the story turns out to be exactly right on, and of course the excited home model, not that different from the AOL Time Warner model, which is not that different from the sort of Comcast model of today. So even if the founder's vision is sort of perfect, you know, and it's easy to forget Amazon in late 2000, early 2001, I think there were probably a lot of people who wondered whether Amazon would hang on. So even if your, your vision is perfect, it could still all go bust. Right. So further proof, I think, that bubbles and markets remain the most interesting phenomenon that we can observe in the space. Let's do more bubble uh, episodes this year. <laughs> Another bubble series. Definitely. All right. All right. On that note, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow Dash on Twitter at Dashbot. And a shout out to our producer, Topher Forges, and the head of podcast at Bloomberg, Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>